I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers. It's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. This episode was made possible by Beta Brand, the most stylish and comfortable pants I've ever worn to work. Today's case was brought to my attention by my mom, Terry. It's a case that's always fascinated her, and after learning about it, I can totally understand why. During and after this episode, you're going to hear promos for true crime podcasts. Somewhere in the middle of this episode, you'll hear the promos for Obscura and Out of the Shadows. After the episode is over, you'll hear a podcast promo for Evidence Locker. These are all fantastic true crime podcasts that are definitely worth subscribing to. I also want to let you know that some friends and I are in the beginning stages of planning a live show in October of this year, two short months from now. The live show will be sort of a true crime variety show with onstage entertainment and mixing and mingling with some of your favorite LA-based true crime podcasters after the show. So start clearing your calendars now for a really fun true crime variety show happening the evening of Friday, October 18th at the Federal Bar in North Hollywood. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of you there. More details coming soon, so be sure to follow Murderish on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter so you don't miss out on updates. Tickets will also go on sale soon, so stay tuned. One last note before we get into this episode. This case is especially heinous and involves crimes against children. Please use discretion. The 1920s is a notable time period in history, 
but an often overlooked decade in the Western world, particularly in the United States. In the U.S., the 1920s is typically referred to as the Roaring Twenties. Germany surrendered in 1918, ending the First World War. U.S. allies were victorious and the United States was being recognized all over the world as a financial and industrial power. For the first time, more Americans lived in cities than on farms. Automobiles were growing increasingly popular in the U.S. Before the war, owning a vehicle was a luxury only wealthy people enjoyed. Post-war, mass production made automobiles affordable to most middle-class Americans as well. Prohibition began in the beginning of the Roaring Twenties and led to countless problems for law enforcement. On the other side of the coin, bootleggers were getting rich on the illegal sale of alcohol. During this era, the most popular sport in America was baseball, and the best player was George Herman, better known as Babe Ruth, a right fielder for the New York Yankees. Women's rights made some advancements during the Roaring Twenties. Chaperones were no longer required to accompany single women out on dates. Thanks to the recently passed 19th Amendment, women finally had the right to vote. Women became more bold during this time, some drinking alcohol, smoking, and cutting their hair how they wanted. Some women even ditched their floor-length dresses for knee-length dresses, something not often seen before the 1920s. Vaudeville theater, a popular form of entertainment for men, would be a thing of the past by the mid to late 1920s. By 1926, most vaudeville stars had been lured over to cinema by its higher salaries and better working conditions. Until the stock market crash in October of 1929, the Roaring 20s was in large part very good to the United States. The era was especially good for the city of Los Angeles in Southern California. The number of available jobs, particularly in petroleum and aviation, enticed people to move to the area. Between 1920 and 1929, the population in Los Angeles doubled. By the end of the 1920s, Los Angeles was the fifth largest city in the country. Los Angeles became the aviation capital of America, and the city of Hollywood within L.A. County would soon be synonymous with the film industry. During the 1920s, Eight Hollywood studios produced 90% of major movies filmed in the entire country. 80% of movies in the entire world were filmed in Los Angeles. Miraloma, which means View of the Hills, is a middle-class area located about 50 miles east of Los Angeles. Miraloma was once known for its wine vineyards before most of them moved to Northern California. The city wouldn't get its current name until November of 1930. Before then, the city was named Wineville. Shocking and brutal crimes occurred in Wineville between 1926 and 1928, giving townspeople good reason to change the name of their town. A series of ghastly murders took place on a little chicken ranch owned by a handsome and unassuming young man, a man nobody knew much about. Join me as I introduce you to the quiet chicken rancher, and walk you through the brutal crimes commonly known as the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders.
Gordon Stewart Northcott, who went by Stewart, was born on November 9, 1906, in Bladworth, Saskatchewan. Stewart's parents, Cyrus George Northcott, who went by George, and Sarah Louise Cothrope Northcott, had five children. Only two of their children would live to adulthood. Louise, who went by her middle name of Winifred, was the oldest of the Northcott children. She and Stuart, the youngest child, survived past childhood. Winifred, 18 years old when Stuart was born, moved out of the house and got married that same year. Sarah Louise's favorite child, George, died of pneumonia at the age of six. The grieving mother fell into a deep depression, which only got worse when she became pregnant again. Sarah Louise tried to terminate the pregnancy by various methods, without success. When Gordon Stewart Northcott was born, Sarah Louise refused to look at him at first. She didn't want to have her heart broken again. Once she did lay eyes on him, Sarah Louise became completely obsessed with him. In her eyes, her youngest child could do no wrong, and she gave him whatever he wanted. Eventually, Stewart could do whatever he liked, and if he didn't get his way, he'd go into a rage until he did. Stewart's father, George, worked on farms in British Columbia and also did construction. He had two brothers who were successful doctors, although one of them, Ephraim, accidentally killed a woman while performing an illegal abortion. Ephraim was sent to prison where he died in 1928. In 1913, the Northcott family moved from Edmonton to Vancouver, Canada, where they would stay for a while. In 1918, youngest child Stuart injured his head while he slipped on some ice, causing a hemorrhage. He claimed to have delusions for weeks, and his mother said he was never quite the same after that. The doctor told his parents that their son's mind had been left unbalanced, and they might have to move from Canada to a drier climate for his health. Stuart was a very handsome young boy, but he did have a trait that drew teasing from his father. Stuart was extremely hairy all over his body. His father jokingly called him the Ape Man, which was a name the press would pick up on after Stuart's name gained national attention years later. As a teenager, Stuart's parents noticed their son seemed to be sexually attracted to young boys. When he was 15, Stuart was caught molesting a 10-year-old boy. In 1924, the Northcotts moved to Los Angeles, California. George found work as a contractor, and Sarah Louise worked as a laundress. Stuart went to school and worked part-time selling cars. At school, Stuart made friends with a classmate who had a younger brother with whom he took a special interest in. Eventually, Stuart began molesting the young boy, and in 1925, he was arrested for the offense. The charges, however, were dropped because there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute. Oddly, Stuart apparently never got over the loss of the young boy whom he victimized. A fairly talented musician, Stuart would play Songs of Songs on his piano, which was the boy's favorite song. Eventually, Stewart had a desire to get out of Los Angeles. He asked his father to purchase a small chicken ranch for him in nearby Wineville, 
which George immediately did, as he was afraid of his son, and his wife, for that matter. Stuart, who didn't like to work, realized that he would have a lot of work ahead of him on the new chicken ranch. He decided to drive back to Canada to visit his sister, Winifred. He went there to ask her if she'd be willing to let him bring her 13-year-old son, Sanford, back with him. Stuart promised to take care of his nephew and make sure he kept up on his schoolwork. Seeing no reason not to let her son go with his uncle, Winifred gave her permission for Stuart to take Sanford back to Los Angeles with him. Unfortunately, Stuart's plans for Sanford were very different from what he had told his sister. Soon after they reached the chicken ranch, Stuart began to beat and rape his 13-year-old nephew. These attacks would occur several times a week over the next few months. The only reprieve that Sanford would get was when his uncle would find another victim to assault. Stuart would go out to find boys who were looking for work. He'd promise them a day job working on the ranch. Once he got him out in the country, miles from any help, he would attack them. Once he was done, he'd take them back to town and drop them off. This happened a dozen or more times. When Stuart released the boys, he threatened to track them down and kill them if they ever told anyone about what he had done to them. Sanford lived in constant terror. Aside from the rapes, his uncle had a tendency to fly into uncontrollable rages and would start beating him without warning. Sanford could only hope that Stuart would get caught and that he would be rescued. There was one close call. In the summer of 1927 at a park, Stuart was trying to coerce a young boy into getting into his car, but the boy's father showed up and chased him off. Every day for Sanford was anyone's worst nightmare. The teenager woke up at 5.30 in the morning every day. He made breakfast for Stuart, then he'd go outside to tend to the chickens and do other work around the ranch. Sanford did everything, as his uncle never cared for work, especially the hard labor of tending to a ranch. Soon, county school officials discovered that Sanford wasn't attending school. Stewart told officials various tales. He'd tell them that Sanford was attending a parochial school, or studying for the priesthood, or that he was temporarily out of school recovering from an injury or an illness. Unbeknownst to Winifred or any officials, Sanford never attended school the entire two years he lived with his uncle. On February 1, 1928, Stuart left the ranch, saying he was going to Los Angeles. He returned around noon, telling Sanford that he had killed a boy. Sanford walked over to Stuart's car to unpack it for him. As he reached inside his uncle's vehicle to grab a bucket, he saw the head of a young Hispanic boy staring back at him. Some reports indicate that the Hispanic boy had been staying at the ranch as a hired hand for a short period, and that Stuart may have taken him away to kill him, and then brought the head back to show his nephew. Regardless, Sanford could have never been prepared for what he saw that day. Once the shock wore off, Sanford asked his uncle what happened. The only response he got was that he killed the boy because he knew too much. Stuart had his nephew help him burn the boy's head 
and then told him to smash the remainder of the burned skull with an axe. Stewart then threw away what was left of the boy's skull in the trash. He later told Sanford that he had thrown the boy's body out on the roadside. He then instructed Sanford on what to say if anyone inquired about the young boy. Stewart told his nephew to say that he had caught a Mexican hired hand stealing money, and when Stewart confronted the thief, he pulled a knife on him, and Sanford shot the boy. Sanford didn't want to get involved with this, but he agreed, being that he was petrified of his uncle. The next morning, the boy's headless body was found by a man and his dog near La Puente, California, about 30 miles east of Wineville. An autopsy confirmed that the cause of death was a gunshot to the chest. There was no evidence of sexual assault. On March 10th of 1928, a nine-year-old boy named Walter Collins, who lived in Mount Washington, had gone to see a movie. That was the last time his family would ever see him alive again. After realizing her son was missing, Walter Collins' mother, Christine Collins, went out to search for him. She talked to a neighbor who claimed to have seen Walter around 5 p.m. at the intersection of Pasadena and North Avenue. When she contacted the police, Christine was told she would need to wait 24 hours before her son could be reported missing. Two months later, on May 16th, Nelson Winslow, age 10, and his brother, Louis, age 12, left a meeting at the Pomona Model Yacht Club. The two brothers were never seen alive again. About two weeks after they disappeared, Nelson and Lewis's parents received a letter from their sons, stating that they were headed to Mexico to find gold. The letter was written on a page torn out of a library book from the Pomona Public Library. One of the brothers had previously checked this book out of the library. Police contacted authorities at the U.S.-Mexico border to look for the brothers and detain them if they tried to cross into the country but there were no sightings of the two boys. Back at the chicken ranch, Stewart brought Walter Collins and the Winslow brothers home with him. The boys lived there for a time, but under horribly abusive conditions. According to Sanford, Stewart would tell the boys that their parents had been injured and that he was asked to give them a ride to where their parents were. Stewart forced Sanford to accompany him on these occasions to make the boys feel more at ease about getting into the car with a stranger. And unfortunately, it worked. Instead of taking the boys to see their parents, Stewart drove them back to the chicken ranch and put them to work. He kept them locked inside chicken coops so they couldn't escape. He quickly began to sexually assault the boys. Sanford was forced to feed them and do whatever he could to try to comfort them. Once Stewart got tired of the boys, he decided it was time to kill them. One particular day, Sarah Louise surprised Stewart by showing up to the chicken ranch to visit her son. Knowing that her beloved son liked to abuse young boys, Sarah Louise knew something was wrong when Stewart tried to dissuade her from going outside to the chicken coops. When Stewart wasn't watching, she went out to the coops. There, she saw young Walter locked inside one of them. The apple didn't fall far from the tree, as demonstrated in Sarah Louise's response after seeing the young boy in a chicken coop. After seeing him locked up, Sarah Louise told her son that Walter could not leave the ranch alive. Stewart had worked in a grocery store before moving out to the ranch, and Walter had been there with his mother, Christine. 
Sarah Louise was sure that Walter could identify her son if he was released. She'd rather see an innocent boy die than risk having her precious son locked up for his terrible crimes. Sanford would soon learn just how cold Sarah Louise was. To his horror, Sarah Louise told Stewart that all three of them needed to take part in killing Walter. She reasoned that this would prevent any of them from going to the police and telling on the others. Stewart wanted to shoot Walter, like he had with his previous victim, but Sarah Louise thought the noise might cause neighbors to call the police. Instead, while Walter was asleep on a cot in the chicken coops, Stewart, Sarah Louise, and young Sanford took turns hitting him with the blunt end of an axe. Sanford participated in the beating against his will, but under the threat of death, he didn't have much of a choice. When the Winslow brothers were brought to the chicken ranch on May 16th, Sanford was forced to get their coops ready for them, feed them, and empty their chamber pots. Stewart made the brothers write letters to their parents, telling them that they were fine and that they were going to Mexico. About 10 days later, Stewart decided he was done with the Winslow brothers, and he began making plans to get rid of them. What he did next is beyond anyone's rational imagination. Stewart sent Lewis, the older brother, into the house and forced Sanford to help him kill Lewis's 10-year-old brother, Nelson. It is unclear whether Lewis was killed right after his brother or if Stewart kept him alive for a short time and killed him later. Either way, Stewart's murder count was now up to at least four. The next month, Stewart went to the Los Angeles Salvation Army and presented himself as a personal secretary of a wealthy rancher who was looking for help on one of her ranches. For the work he said he needed to be done on the ranch, Stewart selected a man named Jacob Dahl. Dahl had a wife and four young sons between the ages of 8 and 15. The whole scenario was thoughtfully planned out ahead of time by Stewart and his cold-hearted mother, Sarah Louise. In their plan, Sarah Louise was to play the part of Stewart's aunt, and Sanford was to be her son. Stewart drove the unsuspecting family out to the ranch and served them dinner. Afterward, he drove them back to their home. Oddly, Stewart called the family shortly after and said that the wealthy rancher, referred to as Mrs. Rowan, had just lost her husband and that help was no longer needed. As it turned out, Stewart had planned to murder Mr. and Mrs. Dahl and kidnap their four boys, but ultimately decided against it because it was too risky. The Dahl family didn't know at the time that they had escaped a nightmare. Ladies, how much do you spend dry cleaning the dress pants you wear to work? How much time do you spend ironing those pants? Let me introduce you to Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, the most amazing wrinkle-free and machine-washable pair of work pants you will ever wear. The name says it all. Your workday and weekend attire worlds just collided. Beta Brand's Dress Pant Yoga Pants are the most comfortable, sleek, and stylish pants I have ever worn to work. They're made with a four-way ponte stretch, and they're like your favorite yoga pant but on steroids. 
Beta Brand's pants are made with a thicker, more durable material than yoga pants, but they feel just as comfy. Genius, right? I've been wearing the Skinny Leg Cigarette Dress Pant Yoga Pant, and I am loving them. The fit is perfect, they keep their shape all day, and I can move around in them without worrying that I'm going to split a seam. They really are the best of both worlds, stylish and work-appropriate, but they feel like a comfy yoga pant. The regular dress pants I've always worn are uncomfortable, they wrinkle easy, and require annoying trips to the dry cleaner. I've rocked my dress pant yoga pants with heels, flats, and even flip-flops. They're so versatile. Beta Brand has tons of styles and colors to choose from. There's really something for everyone. Ladies, get yourself a pair of Beta Brand dress pant yoga pants, kick your legs up on the conference room table, and stretch out like a boss during your next meeting. Okay, maybe don't do that because you'll probably get canned. But the point is, you can stretch out in these pants. They are amazing. Are you ready to ditch your old school dress pants and upgrade like I did? Visit betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your purchase. That's betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. Visit betabrand.com slash murderish, all lowercase, to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. Back in Canada, Sanford's 19-year-old sister, Jessie, was worried about her younger brother. The letters the family had been receiving from California weren't showing any improvement in grammar or composition. This, despite their uncle's promise to send Sanford to school. Jessie was sure that something was wrong. Following her intuition, Jessie began saving money to travel to Los Angeles to check on her little brother. Finally, on July 26th of 1928, Jessie arrived unannounced at the chicken ranch in Wineville. Although Sanford was happy to see her, she noticed that he looked extremely thin and malnourished. She sensed that her brother was afraid to speak with her. Sanford, she noticed, was also exhausted. Stewart appeared unhappy about his niece's surprise visit to the ranch, and he made every effort to ensure that Jessie was never alone with her brother. Finally, an opportunity presented itself for the siblings to talk alone. Sanford told his sister about the nightmare he and others had endured on the ranch. He told Jesse that the letters he had been writing for the past two years were not his words. He told her he wasn't allowed to go to school and that he was being beaten and sexually assaulted on a regular basis by their uncle. Then, Sanford told his sister about the murders that Stewart committed and that he had been forced to help. Jesse told her brother they needed to return to Canada immediately. But Sanford said Stewart would never allow them to leave because he couldn't risk them going to the police. Bravely, Jesse stayed at the farm for a week, trying to figure out how to get her brother away from Stewart. On August 2nd, the three of them went to Los Angeles to visit Stewart's parents, George and Sarah Louise. While there, Jessie told her brother to run to the home of a friend of hers to ensure he was safe. Stewart's father, George, was in on Jessie's plan to save her brother. Unfortunately, Stewart found out about their plan and forced his own father at gunpoint to reveal Sanford's location. He then took his nephew back to the ranch in Wineville. The following Sunday, Stewart announced that he was going out of town. Jessie and George took advantage of the opportunity 
and went to the ranch to get Sanford. When they arrived, they were greeted by Sarah Louise. A few minutes later, Stewart arrived back at the ranch and demanded to know what was going on. When Jessie told him she was taking her brother home, Stewart hit her in the face, knocking her unconscious. When she came to, Jessie decided it was best if she left the ranch. Stewart and Sanford accompanied her to the bus station. When Jessie hugged her brother, she secretly gave him money and told him that she had a plan to help him escape. Jessie told Sanford he was to use the money to get back to Los Angeles. She had spoken with George ahead of time about her plan. George agreed to take Sanford to the bus station at a certain point where Jesse would be waiting for him in San Francisco. Unfortunately, Stewart caught George taking Sanford to the bus station and brought his nephew back to the chicken ranch another time. He threatened to kill his nephew if he ever tried that again. When Jesse arrived at the bus station in San Francisco, Sanford was not there. Jesse wasn't done trying. The determined young woman had one more card to play. Jesse flew to Vancouver, Canada and immediately contacted the American consul. She made a formal statement detailing how Stewart had illegally smuggled her brother across the border to the United States. She also detailed the beatings, sexual assaults, and the murders that took place at the chicken ranch. The American embassy contacted the Los Angeles Police Department to let them know about the crimes going on in their area. Back in Wineville, Stewart was feeling the pressure and decided that it was time to leave the ranch. He suspected that Jesse was likely going to tell authorities about his crimes. Stewart packed his things and began selling off whatever he could for cash. On October 31st, as Sanford was loading up his uncle's Buick Roadster, they spotted a government car off in the distance. The two U.S. immigration officials, Judson F. Shaw and George W. Scalorn, were coming to the ranch. The two immigration officials had not been told about the murders. Instead, they were coming there to check on a report of two Canadian men living illegally in the area. Stewart, as well as his parents, were living in the U.S. illegally. After seeing the government car, a paranoid Stewart was sure they were coming to arrest him for murder. Stewart ordered Sanford to delay the police as long as he could, and then he ran off into a nearby field. When Shaw and Scalorn arrived, they took Sanford into custody. Stewart had previously told Sanford that if the police ever caught him, he'd be in just as much trouble because he had participated in the murders. Even so, Sanford was ready to talk. Stewart, however, wasn't ready to give himself up. He made it into Los Angeles and spoke to a judge. Stewart told Judge H.S. Farrell that he was trying to bring Sanford up with good Catholic principles, but that Jessie, Sanford's sister, lived an immoral life and was trying to take her brother away from him. The judge decided not to do anything in a professional manner. Instead, he drove Stewart to an attorney who advised him to go back to Canada. Stewart followed the attorney's advice and left for Vancouver. Sarah Louise soon joined him, leaving George back in Los Angeles. Back home in Vancouver, Jessie had no idea whether her brother was safe or even alive. On September 8, 
She was walking to a job interview with a friend when she ran into Stuart and Sarah Louise. They told Jesse that Sanford was going to be deported back to Canada. Eleven days later, Stuart and Sarah Louise were captured and taken into custody in Vernon, British Columbia. In an interview with the Vancouver Daily Sun, Stuart said, There have been a lot of stories circulated about me. They are all untrue. What awful things to say about a man. Some people have been suffering from too much imagination, and a lot of people will be sorry when this case is cleared up. When asked about fleeing the chicken ranch and heading back to Canada, Stewart said, I had to protect poor little mother from this. I simply could not tell her of this. I simply could not tell her of what they were accusing me. If poor little mother had known of these charges, it would have killed her. So I kept it all from her. Newspapers and everything, I was forced to hide them. I wanted to get her away to a safe place. Then I intended to go back alone and fight this thing. Back at the chicken ranch, the immigration officers were skeptical of young Sanford's story. After all, they arrived to investigate a case of Canadian citizens living illegally in Wineville, only to be told a wild story about a man who was kidnapping young boys, sexually assaulting them, and murdering them. On September 17th, however, Sanford was able to prove his story to them was true. Sanford showed the men two graves near the chicken coops, where Stewart kept his prisoners locked up. When the sites were dug up, partial remains of the Winslow brothers and pieces from the head of the unidentified Hispanic boy were found. Sanford told officials that Sarah Louise was not involved in these three murders. After the search was completed, a total of 51 human body parts were discovered in different parts of the chicken ranch. Body parts included fingers, hands, and feet, fingernails, toenails, and part of a human tooth, thought to be from a boy of 11 or 12 years old, were also found on the property. Investigators also found numerous items that would end up being used as evidence. They found part of a toy ukulele that belonged to one of the Winslow brothers. They found the library book from which the Winslow brothers took pages to write the letter home. Boy Scout badges and a whistle belonging to the Winslow brothers were found. A hat belonging to one of the brothers was found in the chicken coops where the boys had been kept. Human blood was also detected in the chicken coops where Sanford told the police the boys had been held. Blood was found inside the graves, accompanied by the unmistakable odor of decaying human flesh. It was also discovered that unbeknownst to Sanford, the bodies had been dug up and moved by Stuart and Sarah Louise. Axe handles covered in human blood and hair were also found on the ranch, along with a blood-stained mattress. Quicklime was also found. Sanford said it was poured on top of the bodies to help burn the remains. Stewart's father, George, would later tell the police that he had bought the liquid for Stewart at his son's request, not knowing what it was for. Officers also found a 22 caliber rifle and bullets, which was the same type of gun that killed the unknown Hispanic teenager. Sanford never knew the boy's name, but Stewart referred to him as Alvin Gothia at times, and Jose Gonzalez on other occasions. Both names were believed to be made up by Stewart. Unfortunately, during the search of Stewart's ranch, nothing was found that could be tied back to Stewart's victim, Walter Collins. 
Sanford was also able to lead investigators to a cabin in Saugus, California, about 75 miles east of Wineville. The cabin was once rented by Stewart. There, investigators found more axes with human blood and hair still on them. Riverside County Sheriff Clem Sweeters had contacted San Bernardino County Sheriff Walter Shea for help. Sweeters asked Shea to lend the Riverside County Sheriff's Department his top investigator, Deputy Jack H. Brown. Brown was an extremely well-respected lawman and was very well known for his investigative and interrogation skills. When Stewart and Sarah Louise were arrested, Brown drove up to Canada to personally escort Stewart back to California. Stewart said he didn't want to be extradited back to California. Brown, not taking kindly to Stewart's bold request, made a memorable first impression upon his arrival at the jail where Stewart was being held. When Brown arrived, he kicked in the back door of the jail, handcuffed Stewart, hauled him out to his car, and drove him all the way back to Riverside County, California. San Bernardino County Undersheriff Richard Beamer said that's the amazing story. Northcott's so smug and so sure he's going to fight extradition out of Canada that it really upsets Jack Brown Sr., and he winds up kicking the door down and bringing Northcott back. When Stewart was escorted back to the chicken ranch, he gave multiple stories, changing them in a way that made it seem as if he was enjoying himself. Originally, Stewart said he killed nine boys. Then he said he killed five, naming Walter Collins, Louis Winslow, Alvin Gothia, a boy named Richard, and a fifth boy whose name he claimed he didn't know. Stewart also gave them hand-drawn maps which he claimed would lead to more buried bodies of boys he had murdered. The maps, of course, were completely made up. During the 1920s, the Los Angeles Police Department, or LAPD, was under fire for numerous corruption scandals. L.A. Police Chief James Davis, who had become the chief in 1926, was under enormous pressure to get the case of the missing boys solved. The police had no solid leads, only tips coming in from the public that would eventually lead them to dead ends. These leads had to be examined, but unfortunately, the tips only led police further away from connecting the four known victims of Stuart Northcott together. Even though the body of the unknown Hispanic boy and the disappearance of Walter Collins and the Winslow brothers occurred within a three-month time period, police did not connect any of them together. Many believe that law enforcement's handling of the disappearance of nine-year-old Walter Collins and the subsequent treatment of his mother, Christine, was inexcusable. After Christine waited the 24-hour period, as she was instructed to do when she first called police, the worried mother called again to tell them that Walter was still missing. The police then told her he had probably just run away and that he would come back on his own. When Walter didn't return home and Christine kept calling, they finally began looking for the young boy. Two witnesses, an employee and a customer at a gas station in Glendale, California, about 50 miles east of Wineville, told police that they saw the body of a young boy in the back of a vehicle, either dead or unconscious. They said the people in the car were foreign-looking and had stopped at the station for directions. When shown a picture of Walter Collins, the gas station attendant, Richard Struthers, 
said that was the boy he saw in the trunk of the car. The other witness, a man named C.V. Staley, said he had followed the car after it left the gas station, but he eventually lost them when the car sped off. Staley told police that the photo of Walter Collins was the boy in the trunk. There were other tips coming in regarding a man and a woman traveling around the county with a kidnapped boy, but the police were never able to locate anyone matching these descriptions. Walter's father, Walter Sr., was incarcerated at Folsom State Prison for robbery. When questioned, he said he thought that his son may have been kidnapped and murdered as payback for his crime. Walter Sr. was known in the prison for reporting on other inmates, making him a marked man. Police questioned inmates who had recently been released from Folsom, but came up with nothing. An LA Times article suggested that Christine Collins had angered criminals while trying to negotiate her husband's release, leading them to murder her son, Walter, but there was no evidence to support this theory. Police dragged Lincoln Park Lake, a lake in the area near where Walter lived, but didn't find anything. Police spoke to a friend of Walter's named Lloyd Tudor, who said that he had seen a stranger in the neighborhood asking where Walter lived. Police showed him some photos, and he picked out someone he thought was the man, but the tip led to a dead end. A neighbor named Mrs. Baker said she saw Walter get into a car with two foreign-looking people. She said Walter was asking them to let him go. Other neighbors said there were two people, a man and a woman, who looked like they might be Italian. The neighbors said they spotted the man and the woman in the neighborhood a few days before Walter vanished. They said the pair were asking where Walter lived. This lead also went nowhere. A month after Walter went missing, LAPD Captain J.J. Jones had 200 police officers search through the section of the city where the boy lived. The search turned up nothing. In August of 1928, it seemed like a miracle had happened for Christine. In DeKalb, Illinois, a small town in the northern part of the state, a man found a young boy wandering around by himself. He brought the boy into the police station. When police asked the boy his name, he said it was Arthur Kent. He said he was wandering around by himself because his family abandoned him, but he would not give them any more details. An Illinois state trooper named O.N. Larson thought that Arthur Kent looked an awful lot like pictures he had seen of a missing boy in Los Angeles, California. After a lot of questioning, Arthur finally admitted that he was, in fact, Walter Collins. The police contacted the LAPD to tell them the good news. They sent pictures of the boy to confirm the news. Back in Los Angeles, the police informed Christine Collins that Walter had been found alive and well in Illinois. For some reason, she was not shown the photos. Christine worked multiple jobs just to make ends meet, but somehow, she gathered $70 for the train fare to bring her son back to California. Meanwhile, the LAPD thought this would be a great opportunity to get some good publicity for the department, which had been the subject of a lot of bad press the LAPD decided to hold a big reunion for Walter and his mother. They invited journalists and photographers to see Walter as he got off the train to be with his mother again. When the train arrived, the boy was taken to Juvenile Hall, where his mother was anxiously waiting for him. As soon as Christine saw the boy, her first words to Captain Jones were, 
I do not think that is my boy. She said he did look a lot like Walter, but that this boy wasn't her son. Jones, not wanting the PR stunt to be ruined, told Christine that of course this was Walter. Jones told Christine that she had just been through a lot with her son being kidnapped. He said the boy told the police where his home was, and he also knew some details about the neighborhood. Jones then told Christine she needed to take the boy home and try him out for a couple of weeks. Christine objected. She knew her son, and this was not him. Jones was unrelenting and pressured Christine to take the boy home with her. Finally, she agreed, and the two of them went back to Christine's house. A couple of weeks later, Christine returned, bringing copies of Walter's dental records with her. The dental records of the boy did not match those of her son, Walter. The dentist had given her a signed statement saying that the dental records didn't match. Police told Christine that the person or persons who kidnapped her son had altered the aisles of his brain. This was why he wasn't acting as she remembered him. Christine continued to insist that this boy was not her son. Captain Jones had had enough. On September 8th, he had Christine involuntarily committed to the county psychiatric ward under a Code 12 designation, which was used for bothersome people. She was told she was mentally ill and a bad mother for trying to get rid of her son and push him off onto the state. She was told she would not be allowed to leave the ward until she admitted that the boy who had been living with her the past couple of weeks was in fact her son Walter. Christine refused. During the time Christine was committed, the police, along with psychiatrists, questioned Walter about what had happened to him. The stories he told were inconsistent. Finally, after 10 days of constant questioning, the boy was ready to tell the truth. At first, he gave them another false name, saying his name was Billy Fields. Then he came clean. The boy was actually 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins Jr. from Iowa. He had run away from home because he didn't like his stepmother. Somehow, he ended up in Illinois. He learned about Walter's life by reading newspaper reports. When asked how he had answered questions about Walter correctly, he said that when police asked questions to which he didn't have answers, he'd wait a while, saying nothing until someone suggested an answer. Then he'd go with what they said. Otherwise, he would just make something up. When police asked him why he pretended to be Walter Collins, Arthur said he'd always wanted to come to Hollywood and that he hoped to meet his favorite movie star, Tom Mix. After Arthur confessed, Christine was released from the psychiatric ward. Captain Jones was suspended for four months without pay, but received no other punishment. He eventually retired as captain, but that didn't put an end to his troubles. Christine decided to sue Jones and she connected with a prominent local attorney named Sammy S.S. Hahn, who agreed to take her case pro bono. Christine won her civil suit against Captain Jones for unlawful confinement. She was awarded over $10,000, which is equal to more than $150,000 in the current day.
Need a new podcast fix? I've got you covered. Check out Obscura, a true crime podcast that takes you deep inside of real murders, mysteries, missing persons, and more. Obscura does such a great job of painting a narrative in your mind while listening. They do this with atmospheric music and sound design, along with exemplary research and real court and 911 audio when possible. Obscura puts a heavy focus on victims and cases many people haven't heard much about. And the podcast takes listeners on a journey deep into the dark side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, Obscura should be your next binge. And for those who want to dive into even darker cases, Obscura Black Label is available each month to satisfy that fix. Obscura has a vast library of episodes ready for you to download right now. Ishers, you don't want to miss out on this true crime podcast that is truly a cut above. Take a second to search Obscura True Crime wherever you're listening now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With the mounds of evidence investigators found, Stewart and Sarah Louise were formally charged for their heinous crimes. Dysfunctionally devoted to her son, Sarah Louise tried taking blame for all of the murders in order to save Stewart. She told Deputy District Attorney Earl Redwine that she had committed all four murders. Sarah Louise told the DA she killed the unknown Hispanic boy in self-defense. In regard to Walter Collins, Sarah Louise claimed he just showed up to the chicken ranch one day looking for a place to live. She told Redwine that she made a cot for Walter inside one of the chicken coops. The next night, she said she came into the chicken coop and saw Walter laying on a cot with his head bashed in but still alive. Sarah Louise told the DA, I took the axe and hit him on the temple and finished him up to keep him out of his suffering. She said that Sanford was exiting the chicken coop as she was walking in, and that's when she saw a wounded Walter. Sarah Louise's story to the DA made it seem as if Sanford hit Walter first. Her precious son, Stuart, had nothing to do with Walter's murder, according to her account. Sarah Louise then told DA Redwine what happened to the Winslow brothers, at least her account of what happened. Although she initially told Redwine that she committed all four murders, her story changed a bit when it came to the Winslow brothers. Sarah Louise now said that Sanford killed Lewis and then beat Nelson so badly that she killed him to put the boy out of his misery. She told Redwine that Sanford and his sister Jessie blamed Stewart for everything. D.A. Redwine wasn't buying Sarah Louise's B.S., It was obvious to him that she was lying to save her precious son. After she gave her account of what happened at the chicken ranch, Sarah Louise asked Redwine to come to her cell. She told him that she had a confession to make, 
When Redwine arrived at her cell, Sarah Louise began telling him a wild story. She started off by saying that she had secretly married an English lord when she was 17 years old. Right after the ceremony, on her wedding day, Sarah Louise said she realized that being married to her would hurt the lord's career as a noble. After her realization, she said she told her new husband that he should go back to England. Two years later, Sarah Louise married George Northcott. In 1906, the English lord returned and took Sarah Louise back to England with him, only to die three days after their arrival. By the time she returned to her home in Canada, George had impregnated their daughter, Winifred. This meant that Winifred was Stuart's mother, and Sarah Louise was actually his grandmother. Redwine believed that Sarah Louise might be making this story up, in order to get an insanity plea at trial, but he didn't know for certain. When it came to assessing Sanford's account of what took place at the ranch, it was much more believable, and it didn't paint Sarah Louise in a very good light. Young Sanford was present when Sarah Louise told Stewart that Walter could not be released because he would talk. Sanford also knew that Sarah Louise was the one who decided that all three of them had to take part in Walter's murder so they would all be guilty and wouldn't tell on each other. Sarah Louise would never go on trial. Despite her crazy stories, she pleaded guilty to the murder of Walter Collins. On December 31, 1928, Superior Court Judge Morton sentenced Sarah Louise to life in prison. Judge Morton said he was sparing her from the death penalty because she was a woman. Although his mother tried in vain to take the blame for her son, Stewart didn't seem to care. When he received a letter from her, he commented that she was crazy and that he didn't like her. A Riverside County grand jury indicted Stewart on three counts of murder. Count one was for the unlawful killing of a human being whose name is unknown, referring to the unknown Hispanic boy. Counts two and three, considered together, were for the murders of brothers Lewis and Nelson Winslow. A fourth, unrelated count was ultimately dropped. Absent from the indictments against Stewart was the murder of Walter Collins. Stewart escaped charges for that crime due to his mother's confession to committing the crime and that she had been convicted and sentenced for it. At his arraignment, Stewart pleaded not guilty to all of his charges. His trial began on Friday, January 11, 1929. Although women were occasionally selected to be on juries in California at that time, Judge George R. Freeman decided that women were to be excluded for this case due to the nature of the crimes. D.A. Redwine presented Stuart Northcott to the jury as a sexual predator who sadistically tortured, assaulted, and murdered young boys. Stuart likely knew that he was going to lose this case and be sentenced to death. Upon that revelation, Stewart used the trial as an opportunity to have some fun. His behavior in court was bizarre. He had previously signed confessions to murdering the three boys, but now he was proclaiming his innocence. He began firing his attorneys one after the other, until ultimately deciding to represent himself during the trial. While doing so, he cursed at D.A. Redwine. He accused Sheriff Sweeters of trying to murder him and of stealing some of his court documents. Not only did he call D.A. Redwine to the stand as a witness, 
he actually put himself on the stand as a witness, asking himself questions and then answering them. He said that his family members were bullied into testifying against him and that they were all liars. Stewart's nephew, Sanford, took the stand during trial. His testimony was detrimental to Stewart's case, to say the least. Sanford told Redwine about the night Stewart came home with the unknown Hispanic boy's head in the bucket. He then talked about the Winslow brothers' murders. Sanford admitted to hitting Nelson Winslow, saying, I hit him first with the axe because Stewart told me that if I didn't, he would kill me. At which time, Stewart screamed out, he's lying. When it came time for cross-examination, Stewart insisted on handling it himself. His final attorney quit on him shortly after that decision was made. In what was surely a bad move, Stewart made his nephew describe one of the murders in detail during cross-exam. He then disputed whether Sanford knew the difference between the sound of a groan and a gasp. The exchange went like this. Sanford, you made me put some mud over his head to stop the noise. Stewart, what kind of noise? Sanford, a groaning noise. Stewart, I wonder if you know the difference between a groaning and a gasping noise. What kind of noise was it? Sanford, it was an awful noise. The cross-examination of his nephew was so damaging that D.A. Redwine didn't want to stop him while he was ahead, so to speak. Redwine never objected once during Stewart's damaging cross-examination of his nephew. Stewart, not very self-aware, seemed to be pretty proud of himself after that day in court. When court recessed for the day, Stewart remarked to reporters, I am not such a bad attorney after all, am I? Stewart called Sarah Louise to the stand as a defense witness. She was brought in from Tehachapi State Prison. On the stand, she repeated her previous confession, saying that she was not Stewart's mother, but his grandmother, and Stewart being a product of George's rape of their daughter, Winifred. Sarah Louise may not have realized her statements meant that Stewart's sexual assault on Sanford meant that he was assaulting his own half-brother. Stewart wasn't done calling witnesses. He also called his father to testify. George didn't have any relevant information that could have helped Stewart's case, and Stewart knew this. His objective in calling his father to testify was purely to humiliate him. George's testimony was actually damaging to Stewart's case. He said on the stand that Stewart bragged to him about killing a lot of young boys. George also said he had seen some of the evidence before Stewart destroyed it. George was the one who had purchased the lye cleansing solution for Stewart and brought it back to the chicken ranch. Stewart had previously admitted to sexually assaulting Sanford, but said he didn't realize there was anything wrong with it. By the time his trial began, he claimed for the first time that his father had been sodomizing him since he was 10 years old, perhaps piggybacking off of his mother's previous claims that George raped their biological daughter and impregnated her. Stewart said during trial, I could not help it. I was brought into the world. I did not ask to be brought in. I was not responsible for the sins of these people before me. George Northcott denied ever abusing his son. When confronted with Sarah Louise's accusations about him, he said that his wife would do anything for her son and that Stuart was her god. 
George admitted to being afraid of his son, who he claimed physically abused him for years. He said that Sarah Louise didn't spoil Stuart, she ruined him, and raised him to be abusive to his father. George called himself the family football. He said, I couldn't do anything with any of them, and I feared for my own life. My wife and my boy both made threats to kill me. Finally, last December, I left the farm and came into Los Angeles and have stayed in the city ever since. Sarah Louise's testimony during trial cemented George's statements. During direct examination with Stewart, Sarah Louise said to him, You are the only one that has ever brought any joy or happiness to my old gray life and has used me right and given me any love. On cross-examination, Sarah Louise couldn't even remember the names of her five children or how many times she had been married. After 27 days, the trial was over. On February 8th of 1929, after deliberating for only two hours, the jury convicted Gordon Stewart Northcott on all three counts of murder. Three days after his sentencing, when Stewart would be transferred from Riverside County Jail to San Quentin State Prison, the father of victims, Nelson and Lewis Winslow, decided this would be the last chance he'd have to find out where his sons were buried. On February 10th, the boy's father and about 100 other men drove to the jail, surrounded it, and told Sheriff Sweeters they wanted to take Stewart out of the jail so he could take them to the location where the boys were buried. Eventually, the sheriff and his men were able to defuse the situation, and the lynch mob dispersed. On February 13th, Judge George R. Freeman sentenced Stuart Northcott to death for his crimes. On May 19th, 2017, Netflix released its newest docuseries titled The Keepers. In this series, director Ryan White explores the unsolved murder of sister Kathy Sesnick, who taught English and drama at Baltimore's Archbishop Keough High School, and the believed cover-up by authorities in the Baltimore Catholic Church of sexual abuse of students by Father Joseph Maskell. A few years have now passed since The Keepers was filmed. Needless to say, there is more to the story. Join myself, Shane Waters and my co-host, grassroots investigator from The Keepers, Jimma Hoskins, as we continue the conversation and investigation into the unsolved murder of sister Kathy Sesnick, as well as the cover-up of sexual abuse by the Baltimore Catholic Church. Out of the Shadows can be found on all podcast listening platforms and at shadowspod.com. Stewart's execution date was set for April of 1929. Stewart planned to appeal his sentence, however. His appellate attorney became ill. This caused his appeal to be delayed until the following year. Stewart's appeal efforts would be in vain. On June 26, 1930, the Supreme Court of California rejected all of his claims for appeal and allowed his execution date to be set. 
Stewart was scheduled to be put to death on October 2, 1930. After Stewart's sentencing, he was transferred to San Quentin State Prison's death row. He immediately began making confessions again, but changing his total body count. This time, the confessed murderer was claiming he didn't act alone. He said, there are others whom I could expose if anything could be gained by that. A few months later, Stewart fell ill with appendicitis. Convinced he was going to die, Stewart requested to speak to assistant prison warden Clinton Duffy. Duffy, who would become famous for his efforts in prison reform, came to Stewart's hospital bed. On what he believed to be his deathbed, Stewart told Duffy that he had killed 20 young boys, keeping them at the chicken ranch for others to abuse. Stewart mentioned for the first time that there were two ranch hands who helped him pull off the crimes. Duffy, obviously skeptical of Stewart's claims given the number of times his story had changed, knew he had to explore whether Stewart was telling the truth. The police investigated Stewart's claims, but no evidence was ever uncovered to support Stewart's latest story. Sanford was adamant that the ranch hands did not exist, and the only person at the ranch who assaulted anyone was Stewart. Neighbors of the chicken ranch were also questioned, and none of them saw people coming in and out, particularly people who looked out of place. Nobody who was questioned claimed to know either of the ranch hands Stewart implicated in the crimes. As it turned out, the police's efforts to investigate these claims were a complete waste of time. Stewart later admitted he had made the entire story up. Stewart obviously liked to talk and taunt. He continued making so-called confessions with the number of victims constantly changing, and at times, he'd say he never killed anyone. There are reports that Stewart would give names of people he claimed held boys at the ranch in exchange for money. Stewart also told Warden Duffy he would give the locations where the victims were buried only to change his mind and refuse to give up the information. Duffy would later say that his discussions with Stewart were a lurid account of mass murder, sodomy, oral copulation, and torture so vivid it made my flesh creep. Despite the hideous claims Stewart made about his father, George Northcott asked the court to spare his son's life, saying that he was of unsound mind. Stewart, however, had completely erased his father from his mind. He told everyone in prison that his father was dead. He told other prisoners that George died in an insane asylum before Stewart even went to trial. Although most people were happy to see Stuart Northcott behind bars awaiting execution, he did have one advocate who was fighting for his release. Larry Nugent, known as the Cyclone Evangelist, met Stewart at San Quentin. Nugent went to C.C. Young, the governor of California. Nugent pleaded with Young, telling him that Stewart deserved a new trial as his original trial had been unfair. While getting to know Nugent, Stewart told him that he had not been allowed to have an attorney at trial. This was one of Stewart's many lies, as it was well documented that Stewart fired his attorneys and chose to represent himself. Nugent's pleas to Young for a new trial went nowhere, and Stewart remained a convicted killer sitting behind bars. On September 29, 1930, three days before her son's execution, Sarah Louise was interviewed from her prison cell. 
She claimed that when she confessed, she was ill with the flu and didn't know what she was saying. During the interview, she said that nobody was killed at the chicken ranch in Wineville. It's doubtful anyone believed her latest story. As the days were winding down, Stewart wasn't done playing games. He wrote letters to both Christine Collins and the Winslows, telling them that if they came to San Quentin to meet with him, he would tell them what happened to their sons. There are two versions of what happened next. In the first version, Christine Collins came to San Quentin on September 30th. During their visit, Stewart blamed the murders on Sanford. When Christine asked where Walter's body was, Stewart said, Ask Mother. In the second version, Christine came to San Quentin. After making her wait for hours, Stewart refused to talk to her, saying, I don't want to see you. I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent. Whichever version is true, Christine Collins said that until Walter's body was found, she still had hope that he may still be alive. On the morning of October 2nd, Stewart pretended to swallow poison to make it seem as if he had attempted suicide. He said his father George had given him the poison during their last visit. Being the compulsive liar that he was, no one at the prison believed Stewart had actually attempted suicide. His stomach was pumped just to be sure. A few hours later, Stewart confessed again, saying that although he and Sanford buried the bodies, George Northcott killed Walter and Sarah Louise cleaned up after all the murders. This so-called final confession came on the same evening that Stewart was scheduled to be executed. That evening, Stewart had to be supported by two guards when taken from his cell. Some say he had to be dragged up to the steps to the noose, pleading with guards saying, please don't make me walk so fast. On this final day, Stewart was still claiming he was innocent. Newspapers stated that he was the first person at San Quentin State Prison who asked to be blindfolded before his execution. A man who had always seemed so cocky now looked terrified. He was said to have asked before he was hanged, will it hurt? Then saying, a prayer please, say a prayer for me. As the hood and noose were put over his head, Stewart's last words were, don't, don't. Right before the lever was pulled, Stewart's legs gave out. He started to fall right when the trap sprang, taking the slack out of the rope. When the trap opened, his fall was too short to break his neck, and slowly he was strangled to death. It took Stewart between 11 and 12 minutes to die. After Stewart's trial and execution, reporters would talk about his effeminate traits and stories they heard about him being dressed in girls' clothes until he was a teenager. There is no evidence that either of these things are true. Regardless, they are a sign of the times. Stewart's proclivity towards same-sex victims and perceived homosexuality was much more attention-grabbing in the 1920s and very much looked down upon. In fact, the decriminalization of homosexuality in the U.S. didn't even begin until the 1960s. D.A. Redwine actually made more references to Stewart's effeminacy and cross-dressing than he did about his being a child molester and sexual predator. In 1935, Five years after Stewart's dramatic execution, a boy and his parents came forward and spoke to authorities. Seven years prior, 
The boy had gone missing and the parents had reported his disappearance to police. At the time of the boy's disappearance, authorities speculated that he might have been a murder victim at Wineville. Now, the boy was standing right in front of authorities. Sanford Clark's account of what happened at the chicken ranch, however, never included details of a fourth boy escaping from the ranch. The historical record and Sanford's testimony indicate that only three boys were ever held at the chicken coop, who were Walter Collins and the two Winslow brothers, all of whom were murdered. In the film The Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie, Mrs. Collins' hope of finding her son, Walter, alive is thwarted by the discovery of David Clay, a would-be victim of Stuart Northcott. In the film, David Clay managed to escape from the ranch and remain in hiding for years, fearful that he would be blamed for the possible murders of the boys who were confined with him, including Walter Collins. The character of David Clay is apparently based on the young man who surfaced sometime in 1933 or 1934, a runaway presumed to be a victim of Stuart Northcott. After his son's trial, George Northcott moved to a farm in Parsonburg, Maryland. Despite the accusations Sarah Louise leveled against George during trial, he tried his damnedest to get his wife released from prison. In 1935, he wrote a letter to authorities claiming that there was no evidence of any murders at the chicken ranch, giving the example of the boy whose parents had reported him missing seven years before and he was safe. However, Sanford denied that this boy was ever at the ranch, and there is no evidence that the boy or his parents ever claimed that he had been to or held at the chicken ranch. George claimed that his wife and son were convicted solely on the testimony of an alleged accomplice who was of low mentality and a dime magazine, Wild West Reading Fiend. It's hard to imagine that George believed any of what he was writing. A more likely motive is simply that he still loved his wife. In the letter, he wrote, I want her. I need her. No better wife ever lived than Louise Northcott. He also said he would always consider Stuart innocent, even after seeing what was happening at the chicken ranch. George Northcott died in April of 1944. His cause of death is unknown. There are reports stating that George committed suicide while he was institutionalized in a mental asylum, but this is likely taken from reports of Stewart's lies about his father, which he told prison officials. Sarah Louise Northcott served her sentence in the Institution for Women at Tehachapi. She was paroled on May 30th of 1940 after serving less than 12 years of a life sentence. This enraged those who knew of her crimes. After her release from prison, Sarah Louise joined her husband on the farm he purchased in Maryland. Sarah Louise died on November 21st of 1944. Her death caused by chronic myocarditis. The convicted murderer was 75 years old when she died. Warden Clinton Duffy wrote that Stewart told him he killed up to 20 young men or boys. After Stewart's execution, Duffy searched his cell and found a hand-drawn map with coffin-shaped boxes drawn on it. Stewart had written, If you look here, you will find what you want. In the margin, he had also written, I am not guilty. Duffy turned the map over to police who investigated it, but found no bodies where the coffins were drawn. Stewart, apparently, was trying to get the last laugh. Also after Stewart's execution, a man trapping in the desert 
found the remains of a boy near Stewart's Chicken Ranch. An autopsy determined that it was a young male, thought to be 12 to 15 years old. The body was never identified, but investigators believed it to be another victim of Stuart Northcott's. Duffy, who was the son of a San Quentin State Correctional Officer, grew up on the grounds of the prison. His wife's father was also a correctional officer at San Quentin. Duffy was assistant warden until 1940, when he was promoted to warden and served for 12 years. While serving as warden of San Quentin, Duffy had many accomplishments. He abolished the corporal punishment of inmates, got better food and desegregated the dining hall, got vocational training for inmates, developed an AA program for inmates, created the first prison radio program developed by inmates in the country, and created a prison newspaper. Duffy was well-respected by everyone. He often walked around the prison unarmed, speaking with inmates. In 1952, Duffy began working at the California Parole Board, began writing books and lecturing about the prison system and capital punishment. Duffy went on to author four books, The San Quentin Story, published in 1950, 88 Men and Two Women, about the 90 executions he oversaw as warden at San Quentin, published in 1962, Sex and Crime, published in 1965, and From Heroin to San Quentin, published in 1977. Clinton Duffy died in 1982 at the age of 84. San Bernardino County Deputy Sheriff Jack Henry Brown continued his long and legendary law enforcement career into the 1940s. He eventually retired and opened a cafe. He died in October of 1946 at the age of 57. He left a wife and a son. Sammy Hahn, one of the more prominent attorneys in California, was best known for defending Amy Semple McPherson, a famous evangelist whom he helped get acquitted of charges for faking her own abduction. He also defended serial killer Louise Pete, one of only four women executed in California's gas chamber. Sammy Hahn took Christine Collins' case against Captain Jones pro bono and helped her win a settlement that she wanted to use to help find her son. On June 25th of 1957, Han took his own life. He tied concrete blocks around his neck and jumped into his pool. He was 68 years old. Christine planned to use the money from the settlement against Captain Jones to find out what really happened to her son. Unfortunately, she would never see a penny from the judgment. Jones refused to pay her anything. In 1941, Christine went to court again, and this time she won a larger settlement in the amount of $15,562. Again, she never received a cent. Christine never stopped searching for her son. Unfortunately, she never found anything about him. Christine married again, but didn't have any more children. She died on December 8th of 1964, never knowing what happened to her son. She was 75 years old. In 2008, the movie Changeling was released, which chronicled the story of Christine and her son, Walter Collins. Jessie Clark, Sanford's older sister, was instrumental in exposing the horrors of the Winefield Chicken Ranch and bringing Stuart and Sarah Louise Northcott to justice. Jessie married Adolphus Francisco Ruiz, a chief Yemen in the U.S. Navy. They had one child and lived in Washington State. Jessie died in April of 1991. She was 81 years old. 
Sanford Clark was never tried for the crimes that occurred at the Wineville Chicken Ranch. The prosecution realized that he was a victim of Stewart and Sarah Louise, not a willing participant. D.A. Loyal C. Kelly spoke with Sanford and told him that instead of prison, he wanted to send him to Whittier State School after the trial. Whittier, developed by Fred C. Niels, was a school that focused on rehabilitation instead of punishment. The boys lived in cottages with house parents and learned skills to help them when they became adults. Not all of the residents had been in trouble with the law. Some were orphans or had parents who couldn't care for them. D.A. Kelly said he had secured an entirely unique settlement to Sanford's legal situation by having Sanford signed up to the nearby Whittier Boys School, where an experimental program for delinquent youths was underway. Mr. Kelly assured Sanford that Whittier Boys School was unique because of its compassionate mission of genuine rehabilitation. Sanford was sentenced to five years at Whittier. That sentence was later changed to 23 months because it was decided that he had impressed the trustees with his temperament, job skills, and his personal desire to live a productive life during his nearly two years there. Sanford was released from Whittier in January of 1931 and sent back to Saskatchewan, Canada. A few years later, he met a young woman named June. In 1935, they were married. Afraid to have children of his own due to his own family members being highly dysfunctional criminals, Stewart and June decided to adopt two boys. Stewart was afraid he might pass on his family members' traits if he had his own children. During the Second World War, Sanford served with the 6th Field Regiment of the Royal Canadian Artillery. After the war, he worked for the Postal Service for 28 years. He retired in the 1970s after he had a heart attack. Sanford died on June 20th of 1991 at the age of 78, two months after his beloved sister Jessie passed away. Stuart and June had been married for 55 years. Sanford never spoke about his experiences at the Wineville Chicken Ranch. His sons knew nothing about what their father had been through. And then, one day, when Jerry, Sanford's older son, was 17, Sanford pulled the car over and told him a story as they were on their way to a hockey game. Stewart told his son that when he was 15 years old, he was the witness against his uncle Stewart, who had kidnapped and sexually assaulted him for two years. He told Jerry that Stewart also kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered other boys, and that his uncle Stewart made him help bury the boys and even made him shoot one of them. Sanford never intended to speak of what happened to him as a child, but there was an unrelated murder that occurred near where they were living at the time. Sanford was afraid that when reporters started doing research, they would find out about him and it would be all over the papers. He decided if the story was going to come out, his sons should hear it directly from him. Reporters never did dig up any information about Sanford's past. Jerry said his father suffered suicidal thoughts for the rest of his days after what he went through at the ranch. Sanford's wife, June, once found her husband alone in a room with a gun in his hand. She was able to snatch the gun out of his hand. As Sanford was dying, Jerry told his father that he loved him. In a sad demonstration of the effects the abuse had on him, Sanford's last words to his son were, Why would you? Jerry wanted to write a book to honor his father. 
he met author Anthony Flacco, who agreed to write the book with him. Jerry wanted people to know his father managed to come out of the two years of terror and abuse by his uncle to lead an exemplary life. He credited his mother June, his Aunt Jessie, D.A. Loyal Kelly, and the Whittier State School for Boys for helping his father through the trauma that his own family put him through. When Sanford was released from Whittier in January of 1931 and was about to get onto a ship for his home in Canada, Loyal Kelly said to him, Use your life to prove that rehabilitation works. Go prove that I am right about you, Sanford. For the next 60 plus years, Sanford used Kelly's words to help him lead a good life. Sanford's son Jerry said he threw his body and soul into fulfilling Mr. Kelly's request. The only thing that he had been asked to do for the best man he had ever met, a man who believed in him. The thought of failing Mr. Kelly was intolerable. Sanford left the Whittier Boys School resolved to go after a normal life the way that a passenger who falls off a ship will swim to land. The book, entitled The Road Out of Hell, Sanford Clark and the True Story of the Wineville Murders, was released in November of 2009. USA Books News dubbed it 2009's best true crime book. In addition to the Clint Eastwood movie Changeling, the horrific chicken coop murders inspired many TV shows, books, and movies. Stuart Northcott appears to have been the inspiration for the unsub serial killer in two episodes of the TV show Criminal Minds. The Investigation Discovery TV series Evil Kin produced an episode entitled Body Farm, which is about the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. In Season 5 of the TV show American Horror Story, the son of one of the characters was kidnapped by Gordon Stewart Northcott. The unspeakable crimes committed by mother and son Stewart and Sarah Louise Northcott occurred almost a century ago. Even so, their crimes are still being spoken and written about today. My question is whether Sarah Louise was the primary influence on her son becoming a cold-blooded murderer, or was Stuart Northcott more of an influence on his mother becoming a cold-blooded murderer? Absent one of them, would either of them have become murderers? What do you think? Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm interested in discussing this case with you. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case with other like-minded people. You can find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, there are so many ways to support it. You can start by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. You can leave the show a positive rating and review in iTunes, which makes the show more discoverable. Buying products and services advertised on the show is another way to help. This episode was made possible by Beta Brand, stylish and comfortable work pants. Make sure to use my special URL or promo code when you buy. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish, where your monthly support will take you behind the mic and give you access to perks like exclusive bonus content, murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout-out on the podcast, and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com 
That's murderishpodcast.threadless.com. I have t-shirts, coffee mugs, you name it. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Much of the music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the U.S., to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.